Charles Dickens began his famous novel, The Tale of Two Cities, this way. It was the worst of times, and it was the best of times. And where would you put 2020 in that? Obviously, it'd be the worst of times. And for the Jews who lived in Judea and Galilee at the beginning of the first century, it was pretty much only the worst of times. The Jews were ruled by tyrannical, insane, vassal king by the name of Herod, who was a puppet for the Roman occupation. And for the Jews, it was a dark time. It was a dangerous time. But the closing lines of the first chapter of Luke's gospel describe the birth of Jesus with a wonderful metaphor. Quoting the prophet Malachi, Luke calls the birth of Jesus a sunrise from on high. The night before that sunrise had been long, it had been dark. The last Old Testament prophet was named Malachi. And Malachi promised in the last chapter of the last Old Testament book that the sun, the S-U-N, the sun of righteousness, would arise with healing in its wings. Sunrise is coming. Sunrise is coming. The darkness is not permanent, but it usually is true that the dark, darkness is deepest before the dawn. And for 400 years since Malachi declared the sun of righteousness will rise, for 400 years, God did not speak to Israel. There was no prophet in Israel. There was no prophet in Judah. There was no revelation from God. Therefore, it was the darkest time of all. For 400 years, heaven was silent. Prayers went up, but it seemed like they were just bouncing against brass and they, the words came back down. And Israel sunk deeper and deeper into depression and and oppression. And during that time, during that 400 years, they've been oppressed by the Greeks under Antiochus Epiphanes, who actually had the unmitigated gall to go into the holy place, the holy of holies in the temple, and desecrate it, going so far as to sacrifice a pig on the altar of God. It was a time when the Gentile Greeks came in and they brought their pagan gods and they brought their pagan theology and they mingled it in that sacred land with the people of Israel. And then the Greeks were followed by the Romans with all their idolatries. And this made the depression even greater. And as much as the Jewish people cried out to God, God did not speak and no prophet appeared. When Luke wrote about the events in his gospel, more than 400 years had passed since Malachi's time, with, without a word of prophecy, without a sign of a prophet from God, but the long darkness was about to experience a sunrise. Great plans laid in eternity past began to activate. God and his light were about to break into history. The silence would be broken. The light was about to dawn. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to, to Luke chapter 1 at the fifth verse. Beginning at verse 5 in the first chapter of Luke, God is going, or Luke is going to show us how God is at work in the unexpected. We're going to see how God works extraordinarily in the ordinary circumstances of life, how he works in the all too often difficult and troubled yet commonplace situations of life. God is at work in our lives, and God was at work in the lives of an extraordinary couple by the name of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Verse 1 of Luke chapter, or verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. 
In the days of Herod the king, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would come to each one of us, Father, in a special way. Touch us at the point of each one of us in our very need this morning. Minister to us in these days, in this hour, in this time in which we live. Lord, I ask that through your word you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit this morning, that we would hear what you would have to say to us, that we might know that we have heard your voice, so that we might obey you in all things. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be just looking at verses 5 through 7 in this first chapter of Luke. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we're going to see a stark contrast between King Herod, king of Judea, and a godly older couple by the names of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Luke begins his careful historic account by writing in verse 5, In the days of Herod of Judea. And by doing that, he introduces us to the culture and the times and the place and the circumstances in which Zacharias and Elizabeth lived. As a thorough historian, Luke wants us to know what it was like to live in those days and what their circumstances were. And he wants us to know that, that Herod is not a fictional character. He was a very real person. And history has left us an immense amount of information regarding this man named Herod. King Herod is known in history as Herod the Great, primarily because he was a great builder. He built the Temple Mount and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And at the time, what they called Herod's Temple, along with the man-made Temple Mount on which it sat, apart from the pyramids in Egypt, was the largest man-made structure in the known world, larger than any structure in Rome or in Athens. And Herod also built theaters, theaters, and he built racetracks. Uh, the racetracks were called hippodromes, 
And if you've seen the movie Ben-Hur with them racing around with their chariots, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about there. And Herod built other athletic and entertainment structures. He revived Samaria, which had fallen into a wasteland. He built the most beautiful city of Caesarea, which you can still visit today. I had the privilege of visiting it a few years ago. And you can see the spectacular elements of his buildings there. At Caesarea, Herod built a seaport because there was no seaport around there. So he built a complete seaport. In fact, he even built a swimming pool in the Mediterranean jutting out into the Mediterranean Sea. And he named Caesarea in honor of his benefactor, Caesar Augustus, which was the title of the Roman Emperor Octavian. You see, it was Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, along with Mark Antony, who had convinced the Roman Senate in 41 BC to declare that Herod was, quote, king of the Jews. But Herod was not a Jew. He was an Edomian, which means he was descendant of Esau, not Jacob. And that meant that he was hated by the Jews. And so Herod being declared king of the Jews by the Roman Senate played hard for Senate or for Herod some four decades later. You'll remember when Magi arrived from the east, right from the east in Jerusalem, asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Herod heard this, the Gospel of Matthew records that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You see, when Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled. It meant that someone was going to die. And we'll see why in a little bit. But Herod also embellished the cities of Beirut and Damascus and Tyre and Sidon and even the city of Rhodes. And by revitalizing Rhodes, Herod kept the trade route open to Rome along with all the wealth of Egypt and Syria. He contributed to the rebuilding of the great city of Athens, so he became a very successful leader and ruler. He built the remarkable, seemingly impregnable fortress in Masada. You might know that Masada is down in the desert, down by the Dead Sea. It's elevated up on a high mountain. And Masada was the place where in 73 AD, nearly a thousand Jewish defenders committed suicide rather than being captured by the Roman general, Flavius Silva. Silva. Masada was the summer home of Herod, and Herod built fortresses and palaces all over the land so he could live comfortable and secure in them. And one of the more famous fortresses and palaces was the Herodian, named after himself, of course, which was perched above a little village named Bethlehem. And it's a quirk of history that Jesus, born in Bethlehem, may have been born right under the nose of King Herod. And the soldiers sent to kill the babies in Bethlehem were most likely dispatched from the Herodian. History knows Herod as a great man. So what was it about him that personally made him so cruel? What was it about him that made him merciless and vicious beyond description? It was this. Herod was completely, incredibly jealous and suspicious of everybody else. He was paranoid that someone was going to take his position and power. He feared every potential threat and every threat that was just manufactured in his own mind. Herod was a tyrant. He was a monster. And when history records Herod's evil deeds, the killing of babies in Bethlehem 
as not much more than a sidebar. Of all his deeds of cruelty, the act of killing babies in a small village wouldn't have made the front page of the newspaper today. It would have been just a small blimp on social media. No one was more paranoid concerning his crown than Herod. He was insanely jealous for his crown. He was cruel without mercy. He was afraid for his power and prestige. And fearing a potential threat against him, he had the high priest, who was his wife's brother, drowned. He then had his wife Mary Amney killed, and her mother, and two of his own sons. His murderous reputation was so great that it caused his friend Caesar Augustus to joke, using a play on words, that it was preferable to be Herod's pig than his son. That it was preferable to be Herod's pig, his hus in Greek, rather than his huios, his son. That was a very insulting remark to any Jew. Five days before his death, he had a third son executed. And Herod was so concerned that no one would weep on the occasion of his death. Herod gave orders for the most distinguished persons in Jerusalem to be arrested. They were to be executed when he died so that all Jerusalem would weep. The days of Herod, the king of Judea, were the darkest, the most evil days men could remember. But God was ready to turn on the light. Remember the prophecy of Isaiah? Those who walk in darkness will see a great light. Even in those darkest days, God was at work in the darkness. A baby named John was to be born to an elderly couple by the name of Elizabeth and Zacharias. And John would be the one who would point to the true light. In the spirit and power of Elijah, he would be the forerunner, the Messiah, the light of the Messiah, the light of the world. And God was at work in the darkness that had been silence and darkness in the land for 400 years. No word from God for over 400 years. And as I'm thinking about that, what about our time? What was happening in our country 400 years ago? What was happening in our country exactly 400 years ago today? 400 years ago to this very day in October 1620, 102 brave souls seeking religious freedom were crossing the Atlantic braving fierce storms on a small merchant vessel named the Mayflower. 400 years ago today, they'd been at sea for about three weeks. And like the days when the pilgrims lived, the days of Herod were dark culturally, they were dark spiritually, they were dark socially, and people were without hope. They were wondering, what, what is God doing? Why doesn't God do something? What about all those promises that we read in the scriptures? Culturally and spiritually, in the days of Herod, there was silence and darkness. There was deep, deep societal darkness. But God was at work in the darkness. The camera of history sweeps from the palace of a despot to the humble home of a priest says in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
With Zacharias and Elizabeth, we see the kind of people that God chooses to use when he's at work in the unexpected, when he's at work in unexpected events of life, and we go from the king to the humblest of men, just a certain priest, not anything but a certain priest, a common man. You know, there are at least 30 different men named Zacharias in the Bible. It was a very common name, one of the most common names in the Bible, like today, John or, or Bob. The name Zacharias means in Hebrew, God remembers. It was a very fitting name for what God is going to promise to Zacharias. God remembers. Now, being a priest in that day was not particularly notable. In fact, there were 18 to 20,000 priests at the time. And Zacharias was one of them who lived out in a village about 14 miles from Jerusalem called En-Karim. He would serve in the temple and he would just serve two weeks out of the year, kind of like reserve training today, just two weeks a year. And the priesthood was divided into 24 orders or divisions, and Zacharias belonged to the division of Abijah, one of the 24. Now, why was the priesthood divided down into 24 orders? It was because there were so many priests, they couldn't all serve in the temple all the time, and they had to be divided down. Any priest in the temple would serve two weeks a year, but they'd be two different weeks. Two separate weeks a year, that was it. During the whole year, you would only serve one week at one time of the year, and then you would serve later in the year at another week at another time, and that's how you were brought into temple service. Now, the priest, all the priests came to the temple for Passover, and it wasn't uncommon at Passover, according to the historian Josephus, to slaughter as many as a quarter of a million lambs, 250,000 lambs, a quarter of a million lambs at Passover, so if, if 18,000 priests went about to slaughter a quarter of a million lambs in one week's period, that, that's a great undertaking. So for one week out of the year, Zacharias was a butcher. He would have been covered with blood from the top of his head all the way down to the toes of his feet. All the priests did all day long during Passover week was they slaughtered, slaughtered, slaughtered lambs. Now, Luke also tells us that Zacharias had a wife and that his wife, Elizabeth, was from the daughters of Aaron. In other words, that they were direct descendants from Aaron, the high priest. So you might remember that Aaron was the very first high priest. And so Elizabeth was born into a priestly family. She was the daughter of a priest and all the male descendants of her family of, of Aaron were priests. And since all the male descendants of Aaron were priests, her father was a priest, her brother were priests. Her uncles were priests, her grandfather, her great-grandfather, and, and on back down the line. And so Elizabeth grew up immersed in Jewish priestly function. This tells us a little bit about her devotion to the priesthood and Zacharias', Zacharias devotion to the priesthood and, and their devotion to God and priestly duty. Zacharias married a girl exposed to the devout involvement in the religion of Judaism. And she must have come from a pretty good family, a pretty serious family of priests, because they named her Elizabeth. And her name Elizabeth means, my God is an oath, or my God is faithful, or God keeps his precious promises. And the way I like to paraphrase it for our daughter Elizabeth, God's precious promise. That's what Elizabeth means. God keeps his precious promise, and he did it in our family with our daughter. She's a literal fulfillment of God's promise to us.
Now, Elizabeth was also the name of the wife of the original high priest, Aaron. Tells you something else about this family she came from. Naming Elizabeth after the first wife of a priest. These are people who are serious about their religion. These are people who are serious about their priestly function. And every time they called one another's name, they were reminded that God remembers. Zacharias, God remembers. Elizabeth, God is faithful to keep his promises. So here is a man, just a common, ordinary, garden variety, vanilla priest out in a village somewhere, serious enough about his priesthood that he finds a woman to marry who has all her life filled with priests who will understand his life and his love for the priesthood and for God. Verses 6 and 7 of Luke chapter 1 tell us three things about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And we will close with these. First of all, it says they were righteous in the sight of God. Luke, verse 6 of, of Luke chapter 1. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They were both righteous in the sight of God. And as far as God was concerned, they were right with him. They were right with God. They were righteous in God's sight. And you know, God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And God said they were righteous. So what does that mean that they were righteous? What it means is that their sins were covered. The only way God can declare righteousness, someone righteous, was if he didn't impute or count their sins to their account. In other words, if he didn't hold them accountable for their sins, they were right with him. Their sins were covered. They would not pay the penalty for their sins because God said, I've got it covered. I've got it covered. Or use the common phrase today. God says, this one's on me. Literally, because it's on Christ. It's on me. Now, how did that happen? It happened the same way that it happens all the time. It happened the same way that it happened in Genesis with Abraham, who was the first of the Jewish line. It says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 of Abraham, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. God literally gives righteousness and covering to those who believe in him. So Zacharias and Elizabeth believed in God. They believed in the true and living God. They believed the word of God. They believed the revelation of the Old Testament. They believed that God's holy law was right and true and just and good. They believed they couldn't keep the law. They knew they were sinners who fell short of the law of God. And they knew that God, the law of God, called for penitence and repentance. But they also knew that God was a God of mercy, of grace, and loving kindness. And secondly, verse 6 says, They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. They walked blamelessly. That doesn't mean that they kept the commandments perfectly. No one can do that. We're all sinners. But it does mean that they were walking blamelessly is that they were living without blame and guilt. In other words, they weren't the same after they believed. They had been transformed by God. It doesn't mean that they were perfect, but it does mean that they were obedient. Not perfect, but obedient. They had a reputation for walking according to the will of God 
for walking according to the law of God. They were like Job, you might remember, in the Old Testament, of whom essentially the very same thing is said. Job was a faithful, obedient man. And according to Job chapter 1, verse 1, Job was blameless. He was upright. He was fearing God, turning away from evil. Zacharias and Elizabeth understood the law of God. And as a priest, he would understand it better than most, especially as a devout priest. They knew they fell short. So they came to God and they received his mercy and his grace. They also loved the law of God. They wanted to keep God's law. They wanted to do it. And God gave them the capability of doing that by changing them. Then they were able to obey Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Remember what God promised Joshua? This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all according to what is written in it. So then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. But all was not well with this godly couple. There was a dark shadow over their home. Verse 7 says, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. In those days, they considered the age of 60 to be advanced in years. (laughs) That's making me and some of the rest of you feel older all the time, isn't it? 60, advanced in years. They didn't know anything about 60 being the new 40, and I don't know if I believe that anyway. But in that time and culture, to be barren was considered to mean that God was displeased with them. That's what the culture believed. In the Hebrew culture, it was considered a disgrace to be barren, even a punishment. You might remember in the Bible, Hagar looked down on Sarah when Hagar conceived, but Sarah remained barren. Leah referred to her former barrenness as a misery. Infertile infertile Hannah wept bitterly before the Lord. And barrenness carried a moral stigma because in, in Jewish thinking, it was not the fate of the righteous. God considered Elizabeth to be righteous, but her neighbors didn't. Nobody else did. Only God. And probably Zacharias. Elizabeth would have suffered a small or a smug reproach in that small town. You know how it is in small towns and how people act when you're a reproach. And I can see this couple late at night with the flickering lamp wondering what the future holds. They didn't know whether they're going to live a short time or they're going to live a long time. Would one of them be widowed and be alone, really, in their community? And hopes and dreams came hard when they were well along in years. They had never heard of Hippocrates, but he put it perfectly. A man, when his growth is over, is dry and cold. The fountains of maternity were dry, as somebody put it. The spotted hands of this righteous couple would never hold a child of their own. So they thought. So they thought. God is about to work in the unexpected. The sunrise from on high is about to visit them. But we're going to have to leave that 
Till next time, shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this godly couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth, just an ordinary couple, living in an ordinary time, but living in a time of an extraordinary negative and dark events of their community and of their world. Father, we thank you for their example of righteousness and how they lived during that time. And Father, we thank you that example to us where we live in dark times and in dark places in so many, so many ways. 2020 is going to be remembered as a dark time and a dark place in history, Father. But we know that you are at work. You are at work in our lives the same way that you were at work in the lives of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Father, we thank you that you do keep your precious promises to each one of us. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for joining with me this morning. And uh, if you would like to, to contribute to my ministry as I continue to do this, you can mail it in. You can mail it to Bill Slabaugh, Post Office Box 523. That's Post Office Box 523. In Emmett, Idaho, 83617. If you didn't get that down, I'll be posting it on, on Facebook at a later time. Thank you so much. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. May he keep you in perfect peace. Amen and amen.